Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be with you and thank you. But what we're going to look at today is this whole issue around how you get growth out of students, actually, and in the process of growth, how you get expertise, and particularly at the secondary and college level, how you begin. A gentleman I know who's a businessman in Houston says this, when he goes to counsel young people about what to do with their lives, he says, I always tell them one thing, be an expert in something. In fact, Stanford University said, if you want to be employable, you have to be T-shaped. The top of the T is these general skills you have, people skills, etc. But the long part of the T has to be expertise. Otherwise, you can't really develop any kind of long-term stable employment. So it's about expertise. So how do you get that out of kids? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so I want to identify, particularly at secondary in K-12 systems, why we are having such a problem keeping track of learning and particularly growth, then what it means to become an expert. And one of the things, and how you get them there, and using expertise rubrics to track growth. I have to tell you, it'll probably come out in, in this training, I'm bothered, very bothered, by our federal emphasis on proficiencies. Testing that is about yes, no. You got it right or you didn't. For me, that's really a myopic view of learning. Learning is really about a continuous kind of progress. And when you're really learning, you're moving toward expertise. And that's how you get the growth. So let me show you what I mean by that. And we're going to look at seven things somewhat quickly. But it will give you the gist of the kind of thing that needs to be done if you want to move on. And so the first thing is, is that one of the reasons, particularly in high schools in the United States, we're not getting the kind of results we want, is that we don't have an integrated model. We're actually using two separate systems, and they're not working very well. Let me explain. We have this system where we have the standards, and then we have formative testing, formative testing, formative, and state assessment. Then we have a second system we're running for credits and grades. And this system is standards to lesson plans to assignments to grades and then for to credits. So you have this dual system going on. So a student, for example, can fail the state test and have all their credits. Or if you do end of coursing, course testing, they could have gotten really good grades in the course, failed the state in the course test. So one of the things is the systems are not connected. And what you have to have is an integrated system in which you're taking them standards because your purpose is to get growth and student expertise. So that means your lesson plans, your assignments, your formative assessments, your grades, and your state assessments are all linked. So can you understand why we already have problems because we're running dual systems? Now, if you want to link the systems, here's what you have to do. And that's what I want to talk about, how you get the systems linked. Because the weak link in systems right now is the assignments. And let me explain why. The assignments are not calibrated. So let's go a couple... I want to show you what I'm talking about this, and then we'll come back to this PowerPoint. There's something called curriculum calibration, in which assignments are calibrated. 
it just amazes me the number of schools I'm in where they're paying so much close attention to the standards and the formative assessment and the teacher lesson plans, but they're not paying any attention to the student assignments and homework because that's the proof of the teacher's expectations. The work that the teacher gives to a kid to do actually proves their expectations. I was in a low-performing middle school. On the blackboard, the teacher had written, students will be able to identify characterization in literature, which was the standard. But what the sixth grade students were actually doing was coloring in a coloring book. I said to her, so help me understand this. She said, well, they can't read, so it's all they can do. I said, oh, no, 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 no. There's a lot of ways to teach character development. And the reason that we're in trouble in this issue is that we don't calibrate the student work. They did a fascinating study in California with these low-performing schools, and they couldn't figure out why they were low-performing because the teachers were teaching the objectives, the lesson plans were all there. They finally decided to look at student assignments. Now, this is elementary, but I want to show you the discrepancy here. And it happens in high school, too, and I'll give you some examples. Kindergarten, 100% of the assignments were on grade level. By the time they got to fifth grade, only 2% of the assignments were on grade level. When I became a department chair in a high school department chair, the first thing I did, look at, we, we significantly raised achievement in two years. But the first thing I looked at was not lesson plans. You can write anything down on a lesson plan. The first thing I looked at is, what are you asking the kids to do? We found out it was incredible. Like, for example, I had a senior teacher, College Brown seniors. She was teaching The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. For six weeks, I said, no, uh-uh, this is not senior-bound work, okay? So the bottom line on it, we had to go back then and talk about content comprehension. And by the way, let me just say this as an aside. The fastest way to calibrate student work at high school and middle school is to make all the teachers in a staff development meeting take one section of either the SAT or the ACT test and they score it. So if they're more humanities, they do the verbal section. If they're more math and science, they do the math section. And take a half hour, they take it, and then they score it. I've done this with staffs. I had one staff who was so angry at me, but I said, look. They said, you're trying to show us we're stupid. I said, no. I don't even know if you're stupid or not. Uh, you scored your test. I didn't. I said, but here's the reality. The reality is simply this. This is what we are asking them to do at 11th grade. So we really need to think about what we are, our work is that we're giving. So then we plan backward on the work. And it's all related to something called content comprehension. If you truly want to have growth and expertise, then there has to be an understanding of the content. And there's four things that you have to do to know the content. You have to know the structure, the processes, the patterns, and the purpose, okay? And so, let me give you an example of chemistry. Chemistry is about bonding. That's the purpose, plus and minus. That's why we study it. The structures that we study are atoms, neutrons, protons, string theory, okay? Patterns are in the periodic table. If I were teaching chemistry right now to kids, I'd say, hey, it's really a piece of cake. You know, it's all about bonding, plus, minus, kind of like matey, okay? 
And the periodic table is going to become your very best friend because the numbers on the periodic table tell you the rules for bonding and where it sits on the periodic table tells you how it behaves when it bonds. So it's going to be your best friend. And then equations, we'll use those a lot because it's faster than adding them up one by one. So really, chemistry will be very easy. When you frame it against that way, then you are moving the student toward growth and expertise because the student is beginning to understand, okay, I know why I'm doing it. I have a basic construct in my head now to start assigning value and meaning to this. I can move on. I was working with a secondary language arts teacher and she was teaching an AP curriculum at junior. And she said, Ruby, there's too much in here to teach. Why well, I taught it. I said, so how are you teaching it? She said, well, we read a story and then we take a quiz. We read a story and then we take a quiz. I said, you're right. There's too much to teach. I said, what's the purpose of language arts anyway? Why do we bother? She said, to enjoy literature. I said, actually, no. It's not why we do it. It's to communicate. And I said, it's all about two things. The reader, the writer, the listener, the viewer, the, the medium, the viewer. Like, it's two things there. It's communication. I said, here's what you ought to be doing at junior level. You ought to be saying to them, I want you to read these two stories. In this first story, the author made you hate the main character. And in the second story, the author made you love the main character. I want you to write, when we come in tomorrow, we're going to discuss how the author did that. And she looked at me and she said, Ruby, I actually don't know how the author did it. So I can't teach it. So I taught her how to teach it. The bottom line is this. It's about communication. And I said to her, look, if our students don't know that, they're not going to be able to write, to manipulate their reader, to communicate in the best way. I said, that's our job. And if you look at a state assessment accountability, one of the objectives in language arts that's missed the most is author's purpose. It's a key understanding in that discipline. Now, what happens is this, that those things, those four things right there should drive the homework and assessments, the expertise and the growth. And I'm going to show you how you then measure that. So when we talked about calibrated assignments, assignments are actually at the level of difficulty. When we talk about content comprehension, that is how the teacher hones what is and is not important for the student to understand, okay? One of the things in content comprehension is vocabulary. And we, if you have students from poverty in particular and they only have casual register, they actually do not have the specificity of language that you have to have to command uh, expertise. Because part of a domain is, expertise, is, is language. So what I have is one of my favorite tools. It's the fastest tool I know for teaching vocabulary. It works at middle, high school, college, okay? The bottom line is this. You give them these three sheets, which are the prefixes, the root words, and the suffixes, and this worksheet. And let me show you how you work it through it. 
you find two or three words in your content twice a week that they don't know. So let's suppose the word is egregious. So I give them the word egregious and they go to this worksheet and they go, okay, right in there. The familiar word is the unfamiliar word is egregious. The prefix is E, the root or word is G-R-E-G. The suffix is I-O-U-S. Then they go back and they say, okay, what does E mean? Out. What does G-R-E-G mean? Group. What does I-O-U-S? Process. They get here and they go, out, group, process. They go, doesn't make any sense. And we tell them, you got to move the words around. Means you are fully out of the group. You're bad. Okay? Egregious. If they use these three sheets, they can figure out what 90% of the words in the English language mean. It is invaluable for ACT and SAT. Okay? It is invaluable. Science and math, a lot of science and math at the secondary is language. Just what does this terminology mean? I think we forget. We think it's about processes and operations. It's actually about language just as much, if not more. And it's not just your English department. If I can say this, you want it in your science and math. Because particularly in geometry, particularly in science, there is so much terminology that kids don't know. Uh, and you just use it across the board. Now, let me just say one thing. I've got a question from a couple teachers who said, How, where do I get the words? And I said, you get them out of your content. You pick words out of your actual content. Uh, but if you have somebody, a child, who's studying for the SAT or the ACT, or you yourself are studying for the GRE, it's incredible. Okay, They're just fabulous. Now, once they understand, and back to this content comprehension, a lot of educators have difficulty with that. When you ask them, why are you teaching your content? What are the basic structures here? Okay. The patterns tend to be the units we teach. Let me give you one more example of content comprehension. Uh, and this is a high school example again. But uh, it's language arts. But poetry. Poetry is a genre. And by 11th or 12th grade, most educators develop some couple, two, three weeks to poetry. Well, kids hate it. Okay? And one of the reasons they hate it is we never explain to them why exactly we're doing it okay? and how it fits into their understanding. Like, for example, when I taught senior English, we had to do poetry. Well, I knew they hated it. So I started out this way. I said, you know, we're going to start a unit on poetry. And they all groaned. And I said, we're going to start with this poem that's in every literature book in the United States. It was written in the 1700s by a guy named Andrew Marvell. And the poem is called To His Coy Mistress. And I said, Andrew has a problem. Even though he, this poem was written 300 years ago, he has a problem. And his problem is this. He wants his girlfriend to go to bed with him, and she won't. So he writes her a poem about the three reasons she ought to do it. I said, are you interested in reading it? They all were. I said, so here's the deal. Before we read this poem, I want, you, we, we, I want to talk about why he used a poem. Why? A poem. Okay. Why didn't he write a little nonfiction note to her and say, let's screw? Okay. Why didn't he write her a short story about, you know, all this girl went to bed with boyfriend and how happy she was forever? I said, why a poem? And so let me ask you, why did he use a poetry to do this? What can you do in poetry 
that's very, very difficult to do in any other form of literature. You can say things without saying them. I said, look, in Russia, 14,000 people will go hear a poet read their poems, kind of like what Americans do about music. I said, the bottom line of the thing is this. Poetry allows you to say things without saying them. And in repressed countries, it's a form of literature, uh, uh, the revered form of literature. I said, so look, if his girlfriend reads the, the poem and gets mad at him, what can he say? He can say, oh, I don't know how you came up with that. I mean, really, honestly, I didn't even say that at all. You know, if she reads the poem and understands it and is okay with it, then, you know, he gets some too. But the bottom line is he didn't lose. And I said, that's the point that's going to make you nuts about poetry. You can do lots of things with it. You can rhyme. You can rhythm. You can be romantic, all this stuff. But I said, it's frustrating for you because you're not always going to know what it means. And that is the blessing and the curse of poetry. That's content comprehension. You're helping them understand the parts of that. Well, when you do that and when you calibrate your work, then you start to build expertise. And there's a wonderful book by Ruth Calvin Clark on developing expertise. She's in the world of business. And by the way, I find out that the best research right now about expertise happens not to be in educational research, but in business research. Okay, And what she says is this, that experts, okay, there's to be an expert, you have to do two things. You have to have a crystal understanding, which means you have to understand your content area and the language of that content area, the structures in it, the patterns in it, and you have to be fluid. In other words, you can take that crystal knowledge of the domain and you can flex it and be fluid and come up with new situations and new solutions. Let me give you an example. See, one of the things we know about expertise and how you develop it is you develop it by gathering stories and experiences. You group them into patterns, you brain source by patterns, and then you can figure things out very quickly. How many of you in this uh, webinar have had something happen in your classroom and you knew you could predict almost before it started what was going to happen? How many of you have had that happen? You could just know what was going to happen before it happened. Okay. Well, what that means, if you could do that, it means you have expertise. It means that in a split second, you have identified all the patterns that are going to happen and you know what to do about it. As furthermore, another interesting thing about expertise is this. It is problematic when you put a beginning teacher with an expert teacher because the expert teacher has so many things at the level of automaticity. They're so fast. They recognize the patterns and they recognize the variations in the patterns. So they'll change it for this. Whereas one of the things that happens is the beginning teacher sees that, she doesn't know all the thinking that went behind it, and so she does it in another situation where it totally won't work. And then she's confused, or he's confused. It's about expertise. Now, in Ruth Colvin Clark's book, one of the things that she says is that you have, there's eight things you have to do as you design a lesson to develop expertise, okay? 
And one of the first things, I'm going to go in depth on a couple of these, but not in all of them, okay? Um, and we have, um, we I'm in the process of putting this in a, a written document. Um, but the bottom line is this. You have to optimize uh, motivational beliefs. So in other words, why would a student even want to learn this? Okay, and all learning, all learning is related to a relationship and a personal interest. So why? Think of my poetry example. I started with something they were interested in. And I talked to them about why this might be important to them. It's motivational. Okay. Number two, you have to activate prior knowledge. What does the student actually know about this? If I were, if you signed up for a webinar for thermodynamics and I was using all the language of physics, you'd be off that webinar in 30 seconds. You'd be going, mm-mm. You have to activate it, attach it to something you already know. So that's why I did that example of chemistry, plus minus, bonding. You're attaching it to something they already know. You have to direct attention to the important elements of the lesson. What do you want them to pay attention to? But one of the things I want to show you, and it's one of the reasons, you're exactly right, Larry. Okay, it's muscle memory. Okay, the brain is also muscle. You're exactly correct. Okay, well, what happens, one of the most interesting things that most teachers don't know is that you have to manage irrelevant um, cognitive load. In other words, working memory, which is the prefrontal cortex of the brain, is where you work. It's kind of like a, a beer bottle. It's limited in how the neck of a beer bottle. It's, it's limited in how much information can get into the brain, particularly for a beginning learner. And one of the things we don't make a distinction about is the difference between a beginning learner and an expert learner. A beginning learner doesn't have places to attach information, so they kind of float. You can speed up the process if you tell them where it gets attached and help them. But the research is, if you get overloaded, you will shut the teacher off within 12 seconds. If it's more than four or five things, or and if you are stressed when you came in, like many students from poverty are, they're stressed before they ever got there. It's called allostatic load. The research is that it reduces the amount of information that can go into the brain to one or two new pieces. Okay. And in this next thing you're going to see is this. You have long-term memory and working memory. Okay. For this to go in, you have to have... What's my goal for this? Why do I want to learn this? Okay. You have to be able to plan for it and monitor your learning. And one of the things we know about kids who don't learn very well, they actually don't know what they don't know. They don't know they're not learning. Okay. And in the research, one of the things that was just fascinating to me is that you basically have two ways to take in information with your eyes and with your ears. What they said about your brain is this. If you add a third dimension, like writing, okay? So you have a teacher who's lecturing, you're looking at a PowerPoint, audio, visual from the PowerPoint, and you're asking them to write. 
the issue for beginning learners, they cut one of the three out because they only have two. And by the way, to write something down takes 200,000 neurons in the brain. To type in a computer takes 200 neurons. So one of the reasons students remember things more when they write it is it takes more brain power. Now, here's what they recommend. If you're lecturing with a PowerPoint, speaking and asking them to see it, then one of the things you want them to do is provide the notes for them so that they don't also have to write them. And then you stop, have them go back, rethink, and highlight the notes. Take a minute and, uh, but what they said was that if you don't manage for the learner irrelevant cognitive load, too much cognitive load, in 12 seconds they shut down and quit. Question B, are we hurting students by asking them to use computers? Not necessarily, but one of the things I want to say is this, if you really want to embed it into that long-term memory, then I would make them draw or write. In other words, one of the things you want is you want that physical thing, and you want it for your boys for another reason, okay, because physical writing requires movement. Now, typing on a computer requires movement too, but it embeds a lot more if they actually have to physically write it. it there's somehow information from the muscle. I, I don't, I wouldn't pretend to be a neuroscientist, but it seems to be a key factor. Right, they check out, and particularly if they come out of poverty, because they can't do all three. And the working memory is limited to four or five items. If they come under stress, it's two to three. And the bottom line is, yes, mind mapping for taking notes, yes. And I like it for another reason, okay? Because one of the things they found in the brain research on the difference between poor and, and um, kids and kids who came out of educated households is that the visual memories were the equal for both of them, okay? But the, the, uh, the word, the vocabulary development was not, okay? So one of the things, the more visual you can be, the mind mapping thing, uh, the better is um, for them to do. And another thing they found in the development of expertise was this. You, you promote the encoding into long-term memory with visuals and practice. So that's the pictures and the writing, okay? That's how you, one of the ways you get it into long-term memory, okay? You use job transfer to promote retrieval and transfer of learning. You want to get them to understand in real life situations, and I have a tool for you at the end of this to help you do that, okay? But one of the most interesting things they said, is she said, Ruth Cobble Clark, is that you want to give worked examples, particularly in math, particular in language arts, in everyone. Like for example, in science, this is what a lab looks like when it's done, a lab report. Language arts, this is what a finished paper looks like in writing. This is what a four paper looks like, a three, a two, a one. So kids can see, okay? In, in math, this is what a worked problem looks like. And two, what they find is that you, this was an explanation for steps to use a machine 
This side was the process. The left side was the process. The right side was problem solving. In other words, when it doesn't work, what do you look for? And I have this very gifted teacher I work with, Sally Black. She, the Better Algebra for All, she has all the algorithms that a kid needs to know in Algebra 1. And then what she has is in that algorithm, step the steps that kids miss and the mistakes they make within the algorithm, the most common mistakes. And what, So algebra teachers can take this book, Algebra for All, they can copy off that sheet that says, here, here's what's your most problem on this type of problem. Here's where you're going to make your errors. Is this where you made your errors? It's algorithms. It's worked examples. And here's where you're going to have a problem. It's already done for you. You can get it on our website. The book, Alan Zebra, Go to the Land of Algebra, is a book that teaches the conceptual frames of algebra. Because you have to have the conceptual frames in order to know where to hang the information in algebra. It doesn't make any sense without it. So both of these are part of content comprehension. They're part of how you move kids to expertise. And they're both available on our website. Okay, But they will move your students' expertise. Now, the last thing you have to do is you have to identify where the kid is metacognitively, where they have to self-assess their progress. And you need to know, in this book, we, we have several examples. We redid research-based strategies, and we have several examples of how you do that. But we, one of the ways you do it, I'm going to show you two ways now you can make that happen. One is they keep track of their own grades, okay? And the reason this one is so critical is John Hattie, and I don't know if you know his research on effect size, but one of the things we did in this book that we just released, this one, we went back for every strategy and said what the effect size was for it. Here's the problem when you get kids from poverty. They come in two, three, four grade levels behind, and you're supposed to catch them up in one year. So you have to start talking about did this strategy I use make a difference, okay? In other words, did I get a payoff for my time? Let me give you an example. Okay. <laughs> I bought that exercise video a couple years ago, you know. I even bought an exercise outfit to go with it, you know, a little pink thing, okay. And I laid on the couch and watched it twice. Now, if the doctor says to me, are you spending time with exercise? I can say yes. But did it do me any good? No. And so what I find is there's a lot of stuff going on in the classroom that there's no payoff for. And John Hattie said this. He did the meta-analysis. If it has a effects size of 0.4 or higher, you got one year of growth for one year of instruction. If it has a point effect size of 0.1.0 or higher, you got two years of growth. You get 1.44, you get three years of growth in one year. And one of the things we do is we make them plan their grades. In other words, plan them and monitor them. Because in the research, if you're not a very good learner, you don't have the ability to assess your performance. In fact, in the studies they did, when they asked students how they were doing, they rated themselves very, very highly. And they were very poor learners. So you have to make them know. Where are you? What have you done? What did you do well? What did you know? What didn't you know? What are you going to do about it? It's a key factor. Three years of growth in one year. And the second thing we do is we measure the growth against expertise. This is how I used to teach language arts. Now, let me give you an example. Here's one for an expert historian. He, you have to ask yourself, what would an expert, 
what would an expert historian be able to do? Well, they've got to be able to repeat patterns in history. They've got to be able to understand historical interpretation and bias. The identify and integrate the canons of history, military history, social history, art history, music history. They, they're integrated because they all happened at the same time in that period of time, and they all influenced what happened, okay? They have to explain cause and effect, generational linkages, why one generation leads to the next in historical patterns. You know, World War II in Europe didn't happen out of the blue. Issues that came out of World War I prompted World War II, okay? The role of personality. One of the most interesting books, I think, is a book on civil war about the personalities. Many people don't understand that. Part of the reason the South lost the war is because General Lee was sick and dying, and he knew it. His second-in-command had lost all his children and wife in the plague in Richmond, and Jeb Stuart, who was supposed to do reconnaissance, was busy showing off on his horse for the women in Richmond. So when you start understanding the role of personality, then you begin to understand even more pieces, timing, chronological sequence. And then the last one you have to do to be an expert historian is you've got to understand the accuracy of interpretation, sources, and conclusions. Now, Here's what a beginning historian can do, a developing historian, a competent historian, an expert historian. What I used to do when I taught language arts is I had a, uh, one like this for uh, being an expert communicator. And before they ever handled it, and an expert writer, before they ever handled their writing into me, I made them attach that rubric to their piece of writing and highlight where they thought their own performance was. Then I went back after it highlighted in a different highlighter where I thought their performance was. And then I made them give me a plan for how they were going to deal with the discrepancy. And I said, look, if you give yourself a four in every category, you're going to get an F because the bottom line is nobody's that good. And my job is to make you as good as you can be. So let's assess your performance. What is it? I said, there is no point in me marking your paper up. You looking at the grade and forget about what I did. My goal is to make you an expert writer, and you have to know what you're doing, okay? You are assessing that, okay, against a larger grid. I wish community colleges and high schools would say to kids, look, here's where you are in the continuum. Now, what are you going to do to address that to get to the next level? They don't even know there's a next level. Does this make sense? Okay, that's a great question. How do traditional letter grades and percents fit into this? What we did is what I did is we had tied our assignments to this rubric. And what we would say to students is this, we're going to grade this assignment, okay? But we want to tell you why this assignment is important. It helps you move from this place to this place in your expertise. Now, you still grade the assignment the way you would have, okay? But what you're doing is you're telling them why you're doing it. And it allowed me to get tremendously more work out of the things. Yes, you're right. You have to see it. And one of the things that you do is to, to leverage this level of work because kids start complaining about it. They'll go, this work is really hard. And I'll go, wait, what's your future story? So one of the things I make sure every I get out of every middle and every high school kid is their future story. Like, let me give you an example. It's called a visual storyboard. 
okay? And you take a piece of paper with nine squares. They go on the internet, and in each square, they put a picture. Then they make a plan to achieve that, and they identify the obstacles. Like, let me give you an example. Here's what a, a visual storyboard looks like at the high school or middle school, okay? What's your high school diploma going to stay? say? That's the first one. Number two, what's your college or technical school or military certification going to say? What kind of work are you going to do? Okay, make a picture of yourself. What do you look like at work? Okay, what kind of car or vehicle will you have? What kind of money will you make? Okay, what, where, where will you live? Who are your friends and what will that look like? Are you going to have a romantic relationship, a marriage? What's that like? And the last, what are you going to do for fun? Okay. Now, one of the things about this is that when you give that expertise rubric, okay, they'll go, oh, this is too hard. I go, oh, but didn't you have a future story about da 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 And they'll go, yeah. I'll go, well, you know, if you want to get that future story, then you know what? You really got to learn how to do this. And the arguments went away. Because they're like, ooh, I, yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, I do. Okay, that's why I need to have this. You're right. So the emotional reluctance, the emotional avoidance, all that stuff, it goes away. Because you say, hey, I really want you to get here. You said you wanted to get here. So let me give you the tools that you're going to need to get there. It makes all the sense in the world. And we start to do this, Teresa, in the middle school, because if you don't have a future story, there's no point in learning. Like I had a 18 year old boy tell me, I asked him, tell me what your life will be like when you're 25. And he said, I'll be dead. I said, how do you know that? He said, everybody like me is dead. So this future story is unbelievably powerful. And then you help, they make a written plan from this and they identify the barriers. What's gonna keep them from getting there? And if they say to me, I don't want to learn this, then I say, you created a barrier for your story. So what you are doing is getting them moving. And they understand then why they're learning what they're learning. I love expertise rubrics. Do you have questions about this? Yes, I agree with you. I've asked staff members to create one before. And the only time I was ever a problem is I had a woman come up to me and she said, I have terminal cancer. I don't have a future story. And I said, you know, you have a story for the days you have left. What do you want for the days you have left? What are your motivators you use to get kids to come to school daily? Well, one of the first things I want to know is I want to know what their resources is are. Because if you go back to Framework for Understanding Poverty and they do a resource analysis and by secondary, they can do it with you. You can go down that list of resources and say, tell me about them. And in the book Under Resource Learner, there's a, actually a close activity. It's two pages you can Xerox off that they will say. that By them filling in that in, you can find out a lot about their resources. So number one, I want to know, do they have resources? Number two, is there something outside themselves, external, that's keeping them from coming to school? Are they supposed to take care of somebody? Do they not have transportation? Do they have their own child? What's keeping them from coming external? If it's not an external reality, then there's something internal. So one of the things I like to know, are they being bullied? Okay. 
is there a physical illness? Is there, um, I want to know more about internally what's there. If they're coming to some classes but not others, then there's an issue with the staff. So I'm looking, I'm delineating, I'm eliminating what the issues are. And one of the things I want to say is that you want to then begin, as you eliminate what the issues are, you have to address them, okay? Um, how are they held accountable for their story? Well, one of the things I ask them is you ask them to go back each semester and revisit that story and tell you if, why that story is still beneficial to them or if they've changed it because you want to hold it in their head, okay? Um, and so then if they're having difficulty, I'm saying to them, okay, did you change your mind about this? Or did you find something you like better? It's a constant dialogue. Let me just say very quickly, one of the emotional impediments to learning is this victim triangle, okay? And one of the things, particularly at secondary, is they they get in this triangle. So I'm going to call it to your attention. Uh, we don't have time to explain it in more detail, but if you would go to uh, the framework book, the new one, there's a, a description of it in there. But I find that particularly secondary, they are very skilled at using this against the teacher and uh, against work. And the rules are simply, if you get in the triangle, you'll take on all three roles. And number two, you won't solve the problem. So I find a lot of teachers get in the triangle with a kid. The kid blames them. Or the kid comes in and presents themselves as a victim. And then the teacher tries to rescue them. And then they don't do what they said they were going to do. So then the teacher bullies them. And then they, the teacher feels like a victim. And it just goes around and around and around. And what I say is if you want to stay out of that, you have to ask questions. So part of an impediment to learning, particularly at high school and college level, is this triangle. And Students are very skilled at getting you in the triangle. And it takes the uh, conversation away from the learning. Okay. And then I, in the description, I said I talk a little bit about male brains. And let me just say this briefly. One of the reasons that we don't uh, get very as good a results out of males as we do out of females is this. Okay. One of the things about male brains is this, is that they need movement to learn. Number two, they're going to process emotionally differently. Their, their brains are structured somewhat differently. And number three, one of the things is, is that they, let's, I'll just give you one simple thing, okay? Female retinas, now this is true for 90% of female brains and 90% of male brains. We're not talking about uh, bodies, okay? But female retinas are hardwired. They take in about 20% more light than male retinas do. They're hardwired to see detail and color. Male retinas are hardwired to see movement. So if you're in middle school and you have a seventh grade kid fall over a backpack and say, have you seen my backpack? Well, if it had been moving, they'd have seen it. Okay. The bottom line is detail and color have to do particularly detail. As you get up into content expertise, your ability to observe and deal with detail is huge. And one of the things is they may, they, they may not know to pay attention to that. Okay, 
and until they're older, when they're young in particular, and as they're older, when, the, when that 20% light variable is a key factor in learning. And detail and color have to do with organization too. So schools are just not so boy-friendly, okay? We have not very much movement, lots of detail, okay? And then they process emotion differently as well. So they'll shut down. When a male brain gets stressed, it shuts down and just refuses to work. So one of the things is, is that as you begin to look at the emotional impediments to learning, you can begin to see why it's also connected into this. But to get motivation from kids, to move them to growth and expertise, you can't get it from proficiencies. You have to show them where are we taking you and where are we going particularly at secondary, otherwise they won't go with you. Now, we have about five minutes for questions. So do you have questions for me? What do I think cultural competencies and implicit bias training play? I think it's a factor in the relationship. I also think that depending on how you grew up and where you grew up determines not only what you know, but who you know. And so one of the things that happens when students come into the classroom with a very different set of constructs than the one the teacher has, it becomes absolutely imperative that there be a relationship there so there can at least be a dialogue and conversation because learning occurs at that cross-section. And if you can say to them, I want you to be an expert and I'm going to help you get there, then that also is a motivator uh, for the cultural competencies as well. Exactly. And one of the things is then you link it into their future story and you say, okay, here's why we're studying this and here's what you need to do to be an expert. And let me show you examples of what an expert does. One of the things I did significantly to improve students' writing is I just showed them what skilled writers wrote about a particular topic. And I said, now tell me, how would you write about that topic? And so one of the things, it, it just, it, it got them there. Anyway, part of that optimizing emotional, uh, optimal view. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you and hearing from you again. And uh, thank you. And you're thanking me, but I'm going to thank you for all you do every day. Uh, it's going to take all of us.